What's up, everybody, and welcome to Lights, Camera, Exploitation, your guide to exploitive cinema. This is the pod boss, TJ Bowser, and joining me as always is my doppelganger, Kanga Banger from Down Under, Mr. Brody Kane. Yaddy, yaddy, motherfuckers. And the host with the ghosts, Steve Vasquez. What up, baby? We have a doozy of an episode for you today, but first, it's time for your slice of life. Brody Kane, how goes it? It all goes, mate. It all fucking goes well. Yeah, like I say every other week, uh, working flat out, um, not much really happens down this way. Oh, I was actually um, happy to come home to the other day a parcel that arrived to my doorstep and it was the fucking uh, blade from Puppet Master replica that I'd ordered there a couple of weeks ago. I Hot was damn. surprised. Yeah, I was surprised how quickly it came from the States. And not only that, it looks fucking fantastic. I am very, very happy with it. It looks better than the photos that they put up on the website. So to our listeners, if you are looking at buying one, I highly recommend it. But um, yeah, other than that, I haven't really ordered any new Blu-rays, nothing. Yeah. Although I do need to order uh, the Children of the Corn Arrow release. I'm um just, yeah, Happy to do this episode with you guys today. It's a doozy. Uh, it's, a, it's a stone cold classic, a favourite of mine. And yeah, looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say about this film. Scoobs, how you been, mate? Man, I've been good. Um, I've just been working also. Uh, went back to my calendar days finally. So I am back to my regular school year. I'm getting super excited though, because as time goes by, we're getting closer to being at Steel City Con, which will be my short little vacation getaway for this year. So, uh, um, gearing up for that, getting things prepared. You know, we're getting those Project Louder shirts made. Yes. So just doing that and getting ready for that, man. I really have not been doing much this week. Like I said, I just worked. Um, took my grandma to run errands today, which I I love my grandma time. My grandma time is, you know, the most important time of my week. Then I also found out that my other grandma did some stuff. <laughs> I don't know if I should talk about, but way to go, Grandma. You're a badass. Just give yes. a shout out. You know. Yeah. Um, Viva la it. resistance. Viva la resistance. <laughs> Woo! Y que viva Mexico. <laughs> um but you know other than that man just living life and being a dad with my kid and stuff boss man what have you been up to well i've been doing a lot of podcasts as usual and i hope you guys enjoyed our last episode about dario argento's phenomena because we certainly enjoyed recording it but yeah ordered some new camera equipment today it's going to be in this weekend ordered a new book uh suspiria de profundis which is the book that inspired dario argento to write of course the 1977 classic suspiria Ooh. Yeah, I can't wait to dive into that. Apparently, it was wrote while on LSD. So, yeah, it's going to be quite the trip, pun intended. And yes. I ordered the Franco Nero film Kima today from 1976, and I'm super excited to watch that. That's from Arrow Video, and that should be here this weekend as well. And I will be doing some pre-orders here soon because... Those Arrow and Criterion announcements are just too sweet to pass up, so I can't wait to uh, get some of those. And I can't wait to talk about this week's film, and that is 1981's The Road Warrior, also known as Mad Max 2. He's a soldier of fortune in a future world. He works alone against all odds. He may be the best chance we've got. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. The Road Warrior. Rated R. 
Check Sunday's paper for special sneak preview opens Friday at a theater near you. Directed by George Miller, who also did Violence in the Cinema Part 1 in 1971, Mad Max in 1979, Twilight Zone the movie in 1983, the segment Nightmare at 20,000 feet, and then he also did Happy Feet in 2006. Writers Terry Hayes, who did Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome in 1985, and Dead Calm in 1989. Brian Hannett, who directed The Time Guardian in 1987, and of course George Miller again, who also wrote Babe 1995, Babe Pig in the City in 1998, and Mad Max Fury wrote in 2015. Cinematographer Deem Semler, who also did Young Guns in 1988, Super Mario Brothers in 1993, Triple X 2002, oh, R.C. Argento, music by Brian May, not of Queen, who did Road Games in 1981, Turkey Shoot in 1982, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare in 1991, and Dr. Giggles, the classic film in 1992. Art Direction, Grace Walker, who also worked on The Coca-Cola Kid in 1985, Pitch Black in 2000, Whiteout in 2009, had to include both of them because they're a contradiction, and Doom Patrol in 2019. Producers Byron Kennedy, costume designer Norma Morocco, who also worked on Fatty Finn in 1980, Crocodile Dundee in 1986, Patriot Games in 1992, and The Island of Dr. Moreau in 1996. Budget of $4 million Australian dollars, starring Mel Gibson as Max. You may know him from Lethal Weapon in 1987, Braveheart in 1995, The Patriot in 2000, and an M. Night Shyamalama Ding Dong Signs from 2002. Mel, swing away. Bruce Spence as the Gyro Captain, who was also in Dark City in 1998. Finding Nemo in 2003 as the voice of Chum. Australia in 2008 and the remake of Children of the Corn in 2020. More of as a prequel, isn't it, Brody? I do believe so. Uh, I don't think it's been released yet. Or if it has, it's only been released over your way in a few cinemas. Not not very well widely released at this stage from what I've heard, but yeah, so... Interesting. It'll be interesting. Okay. So, Michael Preston as Papa Gallo, who also starred in Stoney in 1974, Lost in the Wild in 1976, Duet for Four in 1982, and Blade in Hong Kong in 1985. Max Phipps as the Toady, who starred in Thirst in 1979, Stir in 1980, Savage Island in 1983, and Without Warning in 1999. Vernon Wells as Wes, who starred in Commando in 1985, Space Truckers in 1996, and Power Rangers Time Force in 2001 as Rancic, the bad guy. Silent Night, Zombie Night, the hit classic from 2009. How do you say that name, Brody? Yil Nilsson. Kiel? Yeah, Kiel. I'd say it is Kiel Nilsson. Kiel Nilsson as the humongous, who starred in the pirate movie in 1982, The Edge of Power in 1982, Hard Duckle in 1988, and Howlin' Refrain in 2020. Emil Minty as the feral kid, who starred in The Flute Man in 1982, The Winds of Jara in 1984, The Haunted School in 1987, and A Country Practice from 1989 to 1990. And lastly, Virginia Hay as Warrior Woman, she is stunning, oh my god, who starred in Norman Loves Rose in 1982, Bullet Down Under in 1994, Farce Escape from 1999 to 2002, and Rick and Morty in 2014 as the voice of Gazorpian. Yeah, nailed that one. Brody? After avenging the death of his wife and young son at the hands of a vicious gang leader, Max drives the post-apocalyptic highways of the Australian outback, fending off attacks from nomadic tribes that prey on outsiders. Falling into the encampment led by the relatively peaceful Papagallo, Max at first schemes to steal their oil, but soon becomes the group's reluctant 
defender against the hulking humongous and his ruthless marauders. And this movie won a couple of awards and those were the Los Angeles Film Critics Association Awards in 1982. Best Born Film goes to George Miller. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. The Avoria's Fantastic Film Festival in 1982. The Grand Prize goes to George Miller. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. And the Australian Film Institute in 1982. Best Direction in George Miller. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Best Achievement in Sound. Roger Savage, Bruce Lamshed, Byron Kennedy, Lloyd Carrick, Mock Van Buren, Penn Robinson, and Andrew Stewart. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Best Achievement in Production Design. Grace Walker, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Best Achievement in Costume Design. Norma Morricot, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Best achievement in editing, David Stiven, Tim Welburn, Michael Balson, Christopher Plowright, and George Miller. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Best original music score, Brian May, nominee. Best achievement in cinematography, Dean Semler, nominee. And lastly, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films in the United States of America. In 1983, the Saturn Award, Best International Film. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Best actor, Mel Gibson, nominee. Best supporting actor, Bruce Spence, nominee. Best director, George Miller, nominee. Best writing, Terry Hayes, George Miller, Brian Hannett, nominee. Best costumes, Norma Morico, nominee. Boys, let's get physical. Okay, so we have a release from Warner Brothers that was released on April 28th, 2015, and it features a video of 1080p audio, English, DTS, HD, Master Audio 5.1, and also has subtitles for English, French, German, Italian, Portuguese, Spanish, Arabic, Croatian, Czech, Dutch, Finnish, Greek, Hebrew, Hungarian, etc. And the audio to match special features include commentary by George Miller and Dean Semler and an introduction by Leonard Malton, and it is on a 2K Blu-ray that is Region A untested in B and C, though. Currently on Amazon. Amazon for $9.99. Brody, take it away. In an interview with George Miller with the American Film Institute, George talks about The Road Warrior by saying, when the opportunity came up to do a sequel, I was able to do all of the things that I had learnt from that experience. So the second film, which is pretty perceptive, was quite a big shift both in the themes of the story and in the technique. In fact, the first movie was for me a very brutal experience in terms of creativity to which I thought I wasn't cut out to make movies. And then the second movie, to which was much more physically demanding. We had more budget but for a complete set of reasons and we didn't really have a lot of time so the film was shot in continuity because the story allowed you to do that. Basically we ran out of screenplay at one point and one day we didn't shoot at all. Luckily I figured out what to do next but I knew by then that that's what filmmaking is all about and the things are always going to go wrong. George Miller talking about the budget. Mad Max 2 was different. The budget wasn't the issue. The biggest shift in Mad Max 2 was my head. I felt utterly defeated by the first Mad Max. I felt the first, <clears throat> I felt that the film was un, I felt that the film was unrealizable. It's a mystery to me why the film still worked. All I see is its defects. <clears throat> and I thought that if you prepare to film well enough, the film that's in your head, it's just a matter of executing it. And I was quite naive then. What I didn't realize is that filmmaking is tough. And it wasn't until I spoke to Philip Noyce and Peter Weir, Phil had just done Newsfront in 1978, his first feature and Peter had done his second probably feature and they said oh it's always tough it's crazy and that as simple as that sounds that really changed my attitude so we on mad max 2 
I made a point of getting really the best possible crew we could find. We were going to be out in the desert at Broken Hill. It was going to be tough. We were going to try to push things a little bit. And, you know, I, but the attitude that I had, I think that the crew had a, had was vastly different. On the first one, most of the crew had come out to Crawford's television. They couldn't work out why, why we were trying to shoot the film in an atypical way. They thought we were just going to make a Crawford's cop show, but we, but by the time we got to Mad Max 2, I think this was Dean Semler's second feature and his attitude was give anything a go. It's crazy, but give it a go. Uh, we will back you all the way. And we went out there and it wasn't much much physical, much tougher film physically, but with that sort of attitude that it's always going to... But with that sort of attitude that it's always tough and let's just go out and make the very best film we can. That sort of we ended up, you know, by and large having a very good experience on that film. It was I felt as though I was able to achieve something much closer to the film in my head than I did with Mad Max. Sorry. All good, mate. All good. <sighs> uh, in an article written by, well, fuck, here we go. How do you say that name? Coral Korolka. Or Krolka. Jay Silent. That'll do. Krolka. That'll do. Fuck it. In an article written by Krolka Sutton at Cinephilia and Beyond, George Miller states, and I quote, this film came from my experience in having improved as a writer, understanding dramatic conflict a little better. Also, returning to that mythological core, a part of the hero saga is the phase of the dis phase of the dispirited hero. It is that phase which is addressed in Mad Max 2. Because of his personal tragedy, Max has become a burned out closet human being. He's a person who doesn't believe in acknowledging the human part of himself. He feels that the only road to spiritual survival is through a complete lack of emotion. Then, with a great deal of reluctance, he becomes the saviour of the new order. He saves others so that there can be a regrowth. We started off with a basic story, even though in the film we weren't really speculating about what the future would be like. If I had to do a documentary on what I thought the future would look like, I don't think it would be the Mad Max film. But that look enabled us to have a sort of hyperbole, a stylized, simple story which had to be set in such a world. Every element, every element in Mad Max 2 was worked out from the present and from the premise that suddenly there would be no energy, no electricity, so people would rush down to their supermarket and take whatever was left in the refrigerators. They would find other people already there. There would be fights. We would have no gas for our vehicles. Very quickly, things would reach a Darwin stage where human beings would have to survive as best as they could. Some would undoubtedly choose a brutal lifestyle consuming whatever was left since no more goods would be manufactured. But there would, but there would be pockets of people who would try to make a new beginning. So in that same article, George also quoted on by saying, I was very influenced by a book written by the critic Kevin Brownlow called The Parades Gone By. He said the main part of the parade has gone by the advent of sound in cinema. This new language that we called cinema had mostly evolved in the silent era. What differentiated it from theater were the action pieces and the chase pieces. And I really got interested in that. Hitchcock had this wonderful saying, I try to make films where they don't have to read the subtitles in Japan. And that was what I tried to do in Mad Max 1 through 3. And I'm still trying to do that three decades later with Fury Road. Also in that same interview, cinematographer Dean Semler talks about working on Mad Max 2 and is quoted by saying, I don't claim to have a particular style. Every movie is different. In my early days, 
in Australia, I was recognized as an action man after the gut-tearing photography in the Mad Max movies. However, the genre was new to me and every day became an exciting learning process. Learning from the creator and director of those films, the great George Miller. The constant advice I would give, constant advice I would get from him was Dino, just be bold. He wanted a cinematographer who had not only mastered lighting, but also had a good eye for widescreen compositions and one who was prepared to take risks photographically. Understanding that in a fast and wild action movie, when the chase begins, no one would ever care or be aware of the change in light direction or if it was in sun or cloud early morning or middle of the day the other hugely important factor was the camera movement and if you watch mad max 2 you will feel the energy level go through the roof because of the fast unsteady shaking and sometimes violent camera movement as i was looking through the lens and operating the camera was jolting shaking and almost coming off the tripod it was just miller wanting to stir things up a bit and give it an extra adrenaline so after those two films i became the action guy in an interview with Paul in an interview with Paul Burns at Australian Screen, George Miller talks about shooting in Broken Hill. It was physically arduous, but if the spirit is strong, it's when you're demoralized as I was in the film first film that it becomes very difficult on the second film i mean it's wonderful also shooting in the desert and we were one of the first films into broken hill which as you know is a mining town so it had a lot of infrastructure i mean there was a french restaurant for god's sake and you had all that technology that they use in mines for welding and all the artisans and it's a decent sized town and it's since then become quite a you know, quite a location for people because you've got the access to the desert with fairly decent urban center. George Miller on rehearsing for Mad Max 2. One of the other big differences between Mad Max and Mad Max 2 in the time, in the interim, I spent almost every day thinking about what I'd done wrong on Mad Max 1, why it wasn't sort of bending itself to my will. Remember that I spent almost a year cutting it, that. So I saw every mistake, everything. And once it's locked on film, it's there forever and you say, Oh my God, if the camera was only a little bit lower or had I done that a little faster or what's if I'd changed that line, I was able to confront that. We all do it when we're cutting a film, but I was able to do that. So when the idea for Mad Max 2 came, it was like, oh my God, here's an opportunity to put all that theory into practice. So in one way, Mad Max 1 was a rehearsal for Mad Max 2. And I think every film that you do is a kind of rehearsal for that next one. So you're developing your technique. You're trying to fathom film language. You're trying to fathom them, the mysterious of storytelling, and we'll never do it. But each film helps you do that. So George talks about the mythology of Mad Max 2. There was a big shift on the second film in this way. When I when Mad Max did come out to my honest surprise and relief that it was successful. I watched the film go round the world and become a hit virtually in every culture other than the United States. In Japan, they called it a samurai movie and said, you must know Kurosawa. I'd never heard of Kurosawa. In France, they said, oh, it's a Western on wheels. In Scandinavia, they said, he's a Viking. And basically, I began to realize that somehow there was something else going on there. And that there was this realization that there is a collective unconsciousness going on, that there's a mythology out there. And basically, Mad Max was a kind of weird Australian version of that, a kind of road warrior. And so that led us to Joseph Campbell. Once Campbell opened those doors of perception into storytelling, forget about cinema altogether and basically became a storyteller. I've been trying to figure out those mysteries ever since 
since. So Mad Max 2 was very influenced by that. Suddenly, you saw that he was much more than just a character, that he was indeed a mythological figure, you know, a mini version of one. He's not a great hero, but he has that. Something like that is, he's not. He's not a great hero, but he has that. Something like that is a, what is that word? Nascent in him? Yes, nascent. He's not a great hero, but he has something like that is a nascent in him. And it was. So it was a little bit more self-conscious in Mad Max 2. Not following it, you know, religiously, the hero myth. But it was an understanding that there, that was what was at foot. I should have actually went back through that and cut out all his stuttering because he stutters in his interviews. Ah, makes more sense. Actually, in the making of Mad Max 2, the stunts, we see the real interest of the dramatic stunts being performed and the documentary effectively captures the dangers that inherit in action films. Before performing an infamous stunt throughout the film, stunt performer Max Aspen breaks down the process of performing the stunt for the scene. He stands the buggies upside down the motorbike crashes into it the rider goes over the top to which we cut there i come flying along in this car crash into the bike crash into the buggy and then into the ditch first we see stunt performer guy norris's tumbling leap through the air which was so spectacular it remained in the film as a qualified medical doctor director george miller examined norris who broke his leg performing the stunt before he was feared buried feared before he was feared by ambulance to hospital followed by this tragedy Max Aspen discusses what went wrong. It's a very dangerous stunt, and it's the type of stunt that's completely unpredictable. And if you don't leave the bike before the impact, the bike then takes the impact with you and you can't control it. However, the next stunt that is performed in the film involves Max Aspen being taken to hospital. <laughs> How it goes, down under. Boys, let's talk about it! <laughs> So, Brody Kane, favorite performance of the film. I'll just start off with uh, an honorable mention to our Lord Humongous and the Feral Kid throughout the film. I mean, there's so many great characters in this film. I could have chosen any one of them. But, however, I have to go with Mad Mel himself. I mean, you just simply cannot take your eyes off him. Um, He's just this mysterious empty vessel, you know, that says hardly anything. And, you know, his actions, his actions are actually very clever. Um, and witty and well I suppose you have to be to survive in this environment Um, but yeah most of all his uh, presence that graces the screen uh, definitely which Mel actually sells Um, I mean he's really familiar with the character by this stage Um, but yeah in this sequel yeah he just definitely really catches that and of a somewhat broken man just fighting for survival and I I love that just yeah it gives it that extra punch All right. Um, well I'm gonna have to go with the feral kid there is just something about that kid that for the longest time it he freaks me out man like if i was around that kid i'd be like get that kid away from me his performance was so great he says nothing the entire time he just grunts and makes weird ass noises and his facial expressions are so great you just get like you know and and that scene where he wants to go help max you know what i mean he wants to jump on the truck with max because he wants to help max and he just for me he stole the movie for me he's he's like i said he doesn't 
say anything the entire movie. It's just all facial features and grunts. So for me, that was my favorite performance. Can I, that boomerang he has is pretty badass. Yes. Too. Hell yeah. What about you, boss man? Mine would have to be Vernon Wells' performance as Wes. I think that that guy's absolutely batshit insane. Uh, similar to, what is it, the, the Knight Rider and the last one? Yes. Uh, yes. He is an imposing force and definitely a force to be reckoned with at that. It is awesome, especially at the end when we see Humongous keeping him on chains because he's so fucking wild and fired up. And then, of course, seeing how this actor progresses and becomes literally the quintessential bad guy in B-movie cinema. I mean, what's more to say? Vernon Wells, you do good work. Absolutely. Okay, so... Favorite set piece. I mean, how could we not say the Australian Outback? <laughs> yeah, yep, that's agreed. pretty much all I had. Yeah. But like I said, the, watching this film, driving through Texas, yeah. very, very similar. You know, you go to West Texas and it looks like the Australian Outback. I mean, you could film a Mad Max movie out there and say it was made in Australia and you would only know if you lived in Australia. You know what I mean? They are very, very similar landscapes. And yeah, I mean, you have to go with the Australian Outback. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, well, I think the cinematographer uh, definitely captures the beauty. Of the I think you mentioned too. that most of this is shot on a wide angle anyway. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. You got to get that just to make him feel more isolated, I suppose. But yeah, definitely. Um, well, you got George as well, like the attention to detail throughout their films. And I mean, it's, it's kind of cool though, because everyone sort of knows like Mad Max to be in the isolated, you know, desert landscape. But the first film was just all like country, green grass and everything. Yeah. So it's definitely Water. taking a different approach. Yeah, water. Um, but yeah, I, I think it just suits it perfectly, beautifully. Looks fucking fantastic. The lighting. I mean, it's natural light, but anyway, it looks good. The sunset. Yeah, it's just the cinematography aids to the set piece. That is a natural set piece at that. It's, it definitely captures that. And uh, a good a good example of that is whenever uh, Gyro Guy and Max are on top of the mountain looking down at the, uh, the little base. Just the way that that shot is framed and stuff really allows you to appreciate everything that, that, that is on screen. It, it's just a beautiful place and then it also it's it's you're alone and like, like brody said it's it's so big and, and you just feel so alone because of this the, the immense size of the outback but yeah uh favorite scene or shot boys i actually chose the whole opening scene where we introduce uh you know to the new gang chasing max down um you know and well leading up to that uh jump scare i suppose but you know it definitely sets the tone and mood for the film and uh from the word go um, I, I, I just, yeah, it's got, it has insane car crashes, you know, it's got that sweet ultra violence. Um, and it, yeah, introduces us to new intriguing characters, I think. And I gotta, I gotta just sort of say this, but I remember getting up like super early before, uh, primary, well, back in primary school days. And, you know, I used to sit in front of the fire with me fucking Vegemite and toast and watch Mad Max 2, then go to fucking primary school. So, you know, happy memories right there, a bit of nostalgia. So it was really cool to actually go back and watch this film and just, you know, live in that moment. But an honorable mention for me would be the feral kid boomerang scene. I mean, that's just a fucking fun scene. It Fantastic. just shows you like what he's ca quite capable of yep. too. So yeah. So yeah, my I, my favorite scene is the scene where Max crashes the car. Uh, you know, car flips over. You the know, interceptor. You see him. Yes, the interceptor. Beautiful. Mwah. I love mm -hmm. that guy. If I ever win the lottery, I'm buying one <laughs> and I'm recreating it and I'm driving that son of a bitch. That everywhere. and the Back to the Future truck is the only things worth driving. Yes. Yes. <laughs> definitely. 
So the car flips, he comes out and, you know, they, they want the gas. They want Max. You know, that scene right there for me was my favorite, especially when they start to get the gas out of the car. Yeah. And, you know, he scooted all the way back behind that rock and he just blows the fuck out of him. I was like, yeah, yeah fuck that yeah. scene because the dog dies. Well, yeah, the dog yes. dies, but <laughs> you have to have something. I mean, a dog has. Is to that an LCE I mean, first, Brody? I think it is. I was actually really devastated to see this dog die, but I do like how he's got the fucking bone tied to the shotgun where he's got the old mate hostage. I got to, I got to, yeah, that's fucking fantastic. Sorry, sorry, I just got to be. No, lost. you're good. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, boss? So I love the final chase. Uh, I think it's just really cool. I love the visual where you see all, you see the truck alone, and then you see the buggy off to the right with surrounded by motorcycles, and then you just see Max alone in that truck. It's covered and surrounded by raiders and it's just so immense just the, the shot itself is just bonkers but that whole shot the whole scene is even more bonkers people jumping up on and fucking arrows being slung everywhere and explosions it's rad as fuck and i do like brody said boomerang scene yeah that's that's really cool especially just the feral kid and everything but yeah i really like that final chase scene it's it's so i did notice yeah. in that scene though that they blew out the same tire a couple of times when they hit it with the with the arrows it, it was the same tire just throwing that out there it's a very flawed design there by the uh <laughs> the people of uh nowhereville doesn't matter got the job done distracted them okay anything else you guys want to elaborate on okay favorite effect and or death brody Ooh. <laughs> yeah, like I told you last night, this was really hard for me because there's so fucking many. So I made a top five list. Oh, because shit. there's actually 40 fucking deaths throughout this film, and that includes the fucking dog as well. So these are my I top five. I feel like I should have been let in on this. I should have been let in on this. This is some bullshit. Yeah, I do apologize about that. But so starting at number five, just quickly, the infamous stunt that went wrong, you know, when he can flips over that car near the bridge. So, all right, his death gone, fucking end of him. Uh, number four, the feral kid kills Marauder with uh, the boomerang. So that was a fucking fantastic scene. Um, at number three, Max plays chicken with Humongous and wins. Number Number two, two settlers tied to the front of a vehicle getting squashed by the truck and their heads fucking <laughs> fall off. <laughs> and coming in at number one on Kaney's kills, Max steps out of the truck and shotgun blasts a Marauder's fucking face off. <laughs> My God. Fantastic stuff. There you go, gentlemen. Oh, damn. Lovely. Lovely. Kaney's kills. Love it. Love it. So I'm going to go with you. What was it? Your number four? The boomerang, the feral kid killing the marauder with the boomerang. Fucking badass. That hands down my favorite death throughout the entire film. Yes. So I love when homeboy gets torched running into <laughs> the uh, the base. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just because i was waiting for it the moment i saw the flamethrowers and you're like i hope they use it at least once and, and they they certainly do uh i, I just had to mention that because anytime you light somebody on fire in a movie i'm just like yeah it's pretty it's pretty cool uh there's a lot of death lot. in this film and other than that stupid dog scene i love how humongous and wes die 
how mm-hmm. like feral boys like i'm gonna go get that shotgun shell and then wes is like i ain't dead yet motherfucker and then he pops up over and then humongous is coming the other way he's all burnt to a crisp looking handsome and jacked as fuck though and he's just like i'm gonna play chicken and i'm not steering any which way except right ahead and max is thinking the same exact fucking thing and he don't give a fuck and it turns out bad for humongous turns out bad for wes and old mad mel drives right through him and it's fantastic yeah that death's probably my coolest because it's uh the old uh two birds stoned at once you know wes get got what he deserved for wearing assless chaps in that hot heat more to that come later <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if he had to play like suntan lotion to his cheeks get a little Man. crispy hiney <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unless he was suntanning his ass on the regular, I mean, my ass doesn't see the light of day. So if I'm filming a movie where I have to be an assless chaps, I'm probably getting sunburned on my ass. Imagine him undressing in front of somebody. That's a weird tan line. <laughs> <laughs> I can explain, honey. I can explain. <laughs> okay, thoughts on story, Brody Kane. Uh, I think it's fucking incredible. Yes. You know, it's such a basic story that uh, definitely improves on the first film. And I can't help but say it, and I don't like to compare it because it's obviously a different genre, but this feels like it's the Evil Dead 2 of the post-apocalyptic Mad Max trilogy. You know, if that makes sense. Like, it could be its own film. It's Spinal Tap. Um, yeah, pretty much. It, it improves on the filmmaking from the first film, like I said, and it's things... Turns it up to 11. Potentially, yeah, absolutely. And it, and it, this is a film that like could potentially happen tomorrow, especially with the shit that's been happening in society lately. Ooh, hot take. Uh, yeah, I'll, but I won't elaborate anymore on it because that's a fucking story. I think we're um, all prepared. We've all played Fallout enough to know exactly yes, what to do. Yes. and it, But it de- I, like, I reckon it definitely captures that realism of Australia um, visually and throughout the storytelling. I think Mr. Miller really outdone himself with this sequel. And yeah, um, yeah, I'll elaborate on it a little bit more with our next question. But yeah, I think, yeah, overall, story's fucking beautifully fucking written fantastic film amazing film there you go frank miller did such a great job on this movie frank the first i mean i I don't know for me if it was because of the 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 scenery change from the first film to this film i love that post-apocalyptic in the middle of nowhere feel to this movie and they pulled it off just amazing what other film can you say gives you the vibes of just being in a post-apocalyptic world as good as Mad Max 2 does. A boy and his dog, Turbo Kid. Well, but there's a lot of similarities you know, and I, I love Turbo Kid. Turbo Kid's great. I love that movie, and I loved it because does it had a boy and his dog vibe. predate this? I don't think I've seen that, Phil. I don't think I've ever seen it either. Let me look. But but uh, Turbo Kid is basically. I think when I purchased the fucking uh, DVD on the front cover, it was like basically Mad Max on wheels, and I'm like, <laughs> well, what the fuck? Mad Max is on wheels. A boy and his dog came out in '75, so it preceded it by six years. Okay, I say definitely had some sort of influence on the OG. Uh, I haven't just, seen it. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a watch. Post-apocalyptic wasteland watch. with like mutant scavengers running around. Oh, lovely. Yeah. I love like back to what I was saying. I love post-apocalyptic. Fallout is one of my hands down favorite games. Yeah. I play that game and I try to get my character to look as close to Mad Max as I can. I walk around with my always. shotgun. You know, always. You have to. So for me, it's a great film. But like I was telling you earlier, I had no idea that this film even existed. Bef- the first film I ever saw from this series it's was the, the stupid Thunderdome. naming thing that I mentioned. 
mentioned at the top of the show, it yeah. was the Road Warrior. It was Mad Max, the Road Warrior. Yeah. And then it's just the way that it was released. And I mean, now we look back at Mad Max 2, the Road Warrior. But it, again, the first film wasn't super popular over here. So, yeah, yeah, I guess they but great film. Loved it. I loved it. Boss story. I mean, <sighs> I love it. I love how they use the character of Max. Now, these films are presented in a way that they're more legends of the Max character themselves, as in you can be they're taking part of like his journey through this those wasteland, the warrior of the wasteland type thing. And it's just really, really cool because this is totally like told from uh, the feral kid's perspective at the end where he's like, Max is still out there. We don't know. We haven't seen him since. I'm all grown up now. I'm heading this tribe. But the legend of Mad Max still goes on. And I think we see that, you know, in Thunderdome and Fury Road, that it's more of the legend and the character and what it symbolizes and what that character does. It's just really awesome. And I think this is one of those really cool entries into the franchise. And I don't know, not a lot of films make me stand up and go, yeah, fuck yeah. And just really cheer it on. And this film is one of those films that make me do that. It's the high intensity, high impact, ultra violent shit that we absolutely love on this show. And it it just hits all those uh, tick marks in those boxes for me of what a good film should be, especially what a good Ozploitation film should be. So that let that segue like a mall cop into impact and takeaways. Ozploitation guy. Yeah, um, you know, it's definitely a film that helped shape Australian cinema. And I feel that it set the bar extremely high for Ozploitation films to come so even at a time where you know you're having a next to nothing budget it's a film that just really relies on pure creativity um, and by thinking outside of the box um, yeah from from what I've read from critics and fans all over the world is that I guess you could say that Mad Max 2 was definitely a product of its time and inspired a lot of action and sci-fi and sci-fi films to this day so yeah I, I think yeah it definitely helped inspired uh, the film industry in so many ways around the world um, also, just I know this might have really nothing to do with the impact and takeaway, but to what you're saying about the feral kid there before, I really wish they had to use him for Fury Road and brought that in as Tom Hardy's fucking um, character. Mm -hmm. You know, that would have been a cool introduction to actually bring him back and then he could say- That would have been Feral Road. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Then he could like fucking drive his car around throwing boomerangs at people and shit and it'd come back to him. Do you know how he cool that would fucking play. be? Like a shot of That'd him just... throwing a boomerang out of a fucking window and it just comes back to the other side. Oh, yeah. With his fucking bear claw on. Yeah. <laughs> his little booties. <laughs> yeah. His fucking mangy mullet happening until they shave it off. Hey. And that's when he just, just like, I've had a gut for there's, this. There's hope yet in Furiosa, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little bit fucking on the cards about that. But anyway, we'll see what fucking Mr. Miller can conjure up there with Hemsworth. And who's the Sheila playing Furiosa? She's in a lot of horror films. And Anna Taylor? Anya Taylor or something? That sounds about yeah, right. Anyway, it doesn't matter because we're here talking about this fantastic fucking film. So, yeah, basically that's my impact and takeaways. Gentlemen, what about you, Scoobs? So this film, for me, like I said, it's one of those quintessential films that you have to watch. If you're into movies, this is a film that pretty much I've never heard anybody say a bad thing about this movie. And that says a lot. Miller did great, I think. This is just my personal opinion with these movies and especially this one, because this one just takes the mythos of Mad Max and just pops it up a thousand times more than the first movie. And it just keeps going, you know, and it's such a strong film. And like how you said, it's like the Evil Dead 2 of the franchise. It can be its own standalone movie. You really don't need to watch the 
the first one mm -hmm. to understand what's going on in the second one. It's just like an evil dead. And this one is just way. I mean, I, I love I love all the Mad Max films. I do. But this one is just hands down one of the better ones. And for me, it's it's one of my favorite films. If I had a top 10 list of just favorite films, period, Mad Max is probably like a solid five for me. Boss. Yeah, this film definitely had to, uh, like Brody said, set the bar in Australian cinema as a whole because yeah. it, it's so different and it's so next level for everything else at the time. And it's 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 awesome. It's it's such a it defines the genre of the action movie. It's, I'm at a loss for words because it's I think you guys did a good enough job with it. I think, uh, yeah, you can totally see where it uh, influenced other films later on and especially modern cinema. And I mean, in Mel Gibson, I mean, where would he even be a shred of what he is today without these films? Absolutely not. So no, not at all. Every every car chase you see, I feel without like throughout like any movie, you just instantly think of Mad Max. Yeah, you just think of it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, like an upgrade, even that little fucking average fucking car chase scene i was just like well you can't tell me that's not an osploitation thing it's a cool little throwback to yeah well you got the old school hot rod out running yeah but the, but the difference is is that that scene is the only one that i didn't like an upgrade and this movie i love so yeah that's which yeah, was that's which right. was i was gonna say for for someone who hates car chase scenes I love uh, Mad Max, yeah. Yes, definitely. This is like the quintessential one, though. If you're going to like, you know, this isn't uh, Fast and the Furious. And the costumes. The costume design for this was so great. Oh, my God. Yeah. She won awards and shit. Like, every, yeah. Every kitchen appliance was used in this. You could find a Mad Max costume. Okay, boys, let's rate this. So, post-apocalyptic assless chaps out of five. Brody, let's hear your insanely high nostalgic base score. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Oh, well, I'm going to go with a fucking 4.8. Holy fuck, that's thick. Steve? That's what she said. <laughs> I'm going to give it a 4.6. I'm going to give it a uh, more toned down score of 3.8. What? And that is what? a LCE score of 4.4 out of 5. Post-apocalyptic assless chaps. I think that's a fair score. The only kind of assless chaps that should be worn, post-apocalyptic ones. Well, yeah. So on the next episode, we will be doing Strike Commando. Can't wait to do that one with you. Not sure if we're going to do that one with Steve or Nick. It's going to be a surprise, but we can't wait to talk about it nonetheless. And I can't wait for you to listen to all the other great podcasts over at ProjectLouder.net, your source for pop culture, and so much more. And you can listen to other podcasts such as the Big Bad Beetle Bros. Somewhat Supernatural, Ghoulies Unflushed, the TJ Bowser, Power Hour, Rabbit Hole, Wrestling Ruined, and Fatality, a Mortal Kombat podcast. You can listen to all those on Audacity, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, or anywhere else you consume audio-only content. And also check us out on Twitch and YouTube at Project Louder. Thank you for tuning in on another episode of Lights, Camera, Exploitation. This is the pod boss, TJ Bowser, signing off. And I will see you at Steel City Comic Con from August 13th to the 15th. Bye-bye. This is your doppelganger kanga banger all the way from down under saying i'll catch you next week motherfuckers and this is your host with a ghost saying see you later bitches greetings from the humongous the lord humongous the warrior of the wasteland the Ayatollah of Rocket Roller! I'm gravely disappointed. <laughs>
that you will not spare a square. Why will you not just spare a square? All we want is the toilet paper. And once again, you have made me clench my cheeks and beg for more. For no more games. You must leave the compound behind with all of the four-ply or you all die. I will unleash my dogs of war and they will shit all over you and your lawn as we come for every bit of toilet paper you have been hoarding within those shit shack walls. No more games. All we want is the goddamn toilet paper. I, Lord Humongous, ruler of the wasteland, will guarantee safe passage 